I'd like to really just impress upon all the listeners what a great job we do in Utah when it comes to utilizing the legislative audit office and how the audits do turn into a better policy and better governance. This afternoon, the Legislative Audit Subcommittee met and heard presentations from legislative auditors about several recently completed independent audit reports into various aspects of state government. Today, our Legislative Auditor General, Cade Minchie, and his team are here to discuss the findings of these audits and what they say about the management of various governmental systems here in Utah. Cade, as always, thanks for being here. Thanks, Edward. We look forward to the conversation today. So, Cade, this afternoon was the first audit committee following the 2023 legislative session. As such, there was a really good discussion regarding the work your office does to best help the legislature and prepare for the 2024 session during the interim. For those who might not be familiar, can you provide some insight into how your team of auditors really ties into the lawmaking process and integrates into the work our legislators do? Edward, yeah, thanks. I talk about this quite a bit with other states as I talk with my colleagues and interact there. And I'd like to really just impress upon all the listeners what a great job we do in Utah when it comes to utilizing the legislative audit office. Let me just kind of give you a couple examples of that. The first, and I think, is how we govern the process at the very top. And you've probably heard me talk about this before because I bring it up quite often. But I actually had NCSL, the National Conference of State Legislatures, do some research for me. And the question I asked him, I said, are you aware of any other state where the Legislative Audit Office reports directly to the presiding officers? The chairs of our committee, of course, are the speaker and the president. And they went and they did research. They weren't able to get to every state, but they got to most of them. And they didn't find any other example of that in the country. And the reason why I bring that up is it's an audit standard that audits report to the highest level of any organization, which in this case is the presiding officers. And that's important because you get the buy-in and the implementation from the very top. And a ton of the top helps and it goes throughout the organization. So in this, every audit committee after session, we like to give the audit subcommittee a couple of documents. We talked about those today in the audit meeting. They're on our website as well. People like to go to them. I'll just take maybe a minute to talk about each of these. It won't take long. We have a document that we call General Session Impact. And so there's 2023 General Session Impact. There's a whole bunch of examples here where audits directly turned into a bill file, which was you know debated and went through the process and ultimately became a law. We have a whole bunch of examples of that. We think that's really neat. And we think that shows directly firsthand the impact that the office can have and how we are embedded in the process and how the audits do turn into a better policy, better governance. Because there really is this interplay between your office and the lawmaking body, that it's not just that you complete these audits to identify a lot of these problems, but then you specifically, based off of your recommendations, work with lawmakers in order to turn those recommendations into new policy to help improve the systems of government. Yeah, that's well said. And we spent quite a bit of time myself and the rest of the management team, Brian and Darren and Leah and Jesse, during the session working with the legislature. And and of course, the whole office does in presenting audits and meeting with legislators and talking about bills and getting up ideas. It's a very robust process, and I think it's a very productive one. Thanks, Kate. Now let's get into some of the specifics of these audits that you presented today. The first one was this in-depth follow-up of the healthcare in state prisons. Brian, would you take just a second or two to give a little bit of background on this audit? This one's a little unique that this is a follow-up of something that was done previously. Can you describe what exactly is the situation on the ground? Absolutely. Thanks, Edward. In December of 2021, we released the audit, the Healthcare Services in State Prisons. 
And that audit had a number of concerns with the delivery of health care to inmates in state prisons. And because of the severity of the findings and the impact of those, the subcommittee made a motion that had us go in and do an in-depth follow-up, which means that we went in with the team to test each of the recommendations and to see the status. In October of last year, the Department of Corrections reported to the interim committee that all 16 of the recommendations were either implemented or in process. Shortly after that presentation is when we started our review and we went in. And what we found is that only four of the recommendations had been implemented. One is partially implemented and the rest are still in process, which means there's still a number of things that need to be done to get these recommendations implemented. And so we were trying to get into what the root cause of why was it reported this way versus what's actually happening. And so this audit not only presents the status of how the Department of Corrections reported and then what's actually happening, but then we also getting into the root cause of this is we found that there's a culture of noncompliance in the Department of Corrections. And because of this, we also make nine additional recommendations in this audit that deal with the quality and the standard of health care for inmates in state prisons. And so some of the recommendations that were implemented, they develop policies, but while the policies are in place, there's some staff that are ignoring these policies that surround things such as the handling of health care requests, the handling of controlled substances, not only the handling of controlled substances, but the delivery of the controlled substances, and then also how they're handling personal health information. Like that was a concern in the last audit, but we're still finding like a number of personal health care information ending up in public dumpsters and this without being treated the way that HIPAA would require. Now, this seems to be an incredible problem and an issue within corrections at the moment, that there is this culture of noncompliance. So what steps can be taken if we're implementing these policies and they're still not complying with what the written policy is in the book? What are the steps that we can take as a state or that the legislature can even take to ensure that compliance does trickle down to the lowest ranks? Well, the tone at the top is important, and we do see that the needle is moving in the right direction. There has been substantial administrative changes within the Clinical Service Bureau. They have a new director, a new deputy director, a new director of nursing, and they have been working closely not only within the Department of Corrections, but also the Department of Health and Human Services has been wonderful as they have come in and they have helped provide their professional services with their healthcare background. And we do see the needle moving in the right direction of where it needs to be to address these issues with the medications and the quality and standard of healthcare that's being delivered. So what does this look like moving forward? Is there going to be a follow-up of the follow-up audit? Or what exactly can we do in the future to make sure that these recommendations are being implemented and that we can start to move the needle? Well, with our recommendation tracker, we follow up on every recommendation and then we report the status of those and ensuring accountability, we continue on those until we find that the recommendations are implemented. Awesome. Thank you. Well, we look forward to seeing exactly what comes out of this audit report and the future work that can be done on this front to make sure that we get this healthcare system within the state prisons in a good place. So thanks, Brian. So next, we have a performance audit of the space utilization by the Utah Schools for the Deaf and the Blind. The Schools for the Deaf and the Blind are different than any other institution of public education and different than any other LEA, and the challenges that they face are very unique. Can you describe what exactly is the issue that they're currently facing right now, and how can we help them get out of this problem that they seem to find themselves in? Absolutely, Edward. To your point about them being unique, aside from having a very unique population of students with greater needs than some other LEAs, for them it's harder to plan for their enrollment. They can do some planning, but for example, if there's one student who needs a class, they have to hold the class. 
They can't just not have that class. And so they have some unique needs among the state. Some of this has been exacerbated by a lack of long-term planning. For years and years, they had one campus up in Ogden, and then they serve students in different schools and borrowed classrooms. And that just hasn't worked as well. And so they've recently been building buildings to meet the needs of these students. But these buildings and their long-term needs have not been adequately planned. This audit recognizes that need. They do need more space in Salt Lake City and in St. George, and they were appropriated money for that. But the need would have been less acute had there been long-term planning in the past. And so what exactly is the problem that they find themselves in at the moment? Mm-hmm. The problem is a couplefold. School districts have been great to give them classrooms and allow them to teach classes in the schools. Those classrooms are going away in a lot of cases. They're in Granite School District, and Granite is in the process of closing a number of schools. So these children have nowhere to go at that point. So the building that they have is already at maximum capacity. They have classrooms where there's a blanket down the middle, and they teach two classes simultaneously. This is obviously not optimal for teaching students who have these needs. Their other problem is there are increasing numbers of children with multiple disabilities. So instead of being blind or deaf, they also have other disabilities that have higher needs. And so these are all problems and legitimate concerns that USDB is facing. And so what are the recommendations to move forward with this process? How can we best help these students and these institutions, while at the same time being responsible managers of the funds that they are appropriated. The legislature already took a great step in requesting this audit. The funds had been appropriated but not released. The legislature decided to hold on to those funds for the results of this audit. Some of the recommendations that we make is that before they start the construction process, that they have some of these plans, and so they don't have to come back in four years and say, actually, we need more space, we need more buildings. We also have a discussion in the audit about the Division of Facilities Construction and Management should have been more involved and needs to be more involved in the future to help in some of these strategic planning and the details of planning these buildings. And then the other thing that we talk about is, especially down in St. George, that request has changed drastically. The legislature appropriated $12 million, then they did a feasibility study for a completely different plan It was less money, but we don't think that it plans for the future. And so, especially in St. George, taking the lessons that we learned in Salt Lake and putting them into play, long-term planning for what they're going to need in St. George, and then returning to the legislature and saying, this is what we actually need and this is what it's based on. Awesome. Thank you so much, Lynn. Thank you. So next we have a performance audit of the San Juan County Commission. Jesse, can you talk a little bit about what the circumstances are of this audit? It's a very unique circumstance. Can you give a brief background on what led to this audit request? Certainly. There were allegations of two county commissioners. Now, to set it up, it's a three-county commission. And so whenever they pass ordinances, resolutions, they essentially just need two of the three to pass that. And so There were allegations that there were collusion and county business, basically, that was being done behind closed doors. And where this kind of affects our office is they have to operate under a code, which is the Open Public Meeting Act. And basically the whole point of that, stated goal of that, is to ensure that the state, its agencies, and its political subdivisions deliberate and take action openly. And so there were accusations that was not occurring and that they were having meetings with special interest groups 
and perhaps there were some accusations that they were conducting business that perhaps wasn't in the best interest of the entire county. Now, what did your audit find? Well, we had an opportunity to review hundreds of emails. And in that review, we found that as far as we can ascertain, there were meetings that we could reasonably deduce that there were occurring privately. We found that the purpose of these meetings was to make sure that they were all on the same page and all means a private attorney that they were working with. And so essentially they would have these meetings and discuss what would be discussed in the public meeting and then how to vote. And so we had a legal analysis look at this and they found that the communications were definitely inconsistent with the Open Public Meeting Act intent, which is to conduct their deliberations openly. However, the law itself has some ambiguities and so it couldn't be concluded definitively that there was any clear violation of the law. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the things that we found is when you read these emails, there was certainly a lot of kind of questionable acts that were occurring, but it was real difficult for the level of evidence that we needed to prove that they had broken any laws. Mm -hmm. And I'm assuming that's because you're dealing with a three-member commission, in which case you only need two people just talking with each other. That leads to some of this ambiguity of does that constitute a public meeting or does that constitute something behind closed doors? Is it something along those lines? Is that fair to say? That's correct. And what the Open Public Meeting Act doesn't clearly state is what constitutes a quorum. If you have a majority of people, that's generally a quorum. And so if these two people were meeting, could it be considered a quorum? It could be. But again, we didn't have full access to those private meetings, so we don't know exactly what was discussed just after the fact. They kind of said, great meeting. I'm glad we're all on the same page. So we could deduce. But beyond that, we could not prove that they were doing anything illegal. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much, Jesse. Really appreciate it. So last, we have an audit report on the two-year follow-up of 911 answer times for the Valley Emergency Communications Center and Salt Lake City. Brian, can you talk a little bit about what this two-year follow-up found and the original intent of this audit from two years ago? Absolutely. Thanks, Edward. This audit actually kind of shows the power of the oversight and the follow-up process. We released an audit in 2020 that was looking at the 911 staffing and one of the concerns that came out of that was the call answering times. There's a national standard that requires when you call 911 that that call has to be answered in 20 seconds or less. 95% of your calls has to meet or exceed that. And so VEC had been, for the better part of the last decade, well below standard, and that's one of the things we reported. And so the subcommittee, directed by the president and the speaker, they wanted a six-month follow-up, a 12-month follow-up, and then a two-year follow-up. This audit right here is the two-year follow-up of that. If you read VEC's response to this, they've responded that because of the political pressure that has really given them the leverage that they've needed to make substantial changes to their budget and to their operations, we're actually really happy to report that VEC is finally up over that 95% standard. Salt Lake City, for the better part of the last six or seven years, been above that standard. And so having them meeting this national standard is a great thing. And we can also say throughout the state, every PSAP in the state is meeting this threshold, this national standard for excellence. So really starting to see a dramatic increase in the accountability and, and the performance of a lot of these institutions, specifically because of the work that you guys as an audit committee have done, correct? Correct. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, thanks so much for those brief summaries. Cade, is there anything else that you would like to say to members of the public? 
We just appreciate the discussion we had on our subcommittee today, and we would just recommend that everyone go to olag.utah.gov. If they want more information about the audits, it's there. They can also reach out to us at any time. On our website is an About OLAG page, and it has our contact information. We're happy to answer any questions people have. Thank you for the time, Edward. Yeah, thanks so much, Kate.